confident how how wonderful it is to sit inside a building under the protection of a roof that works. <laughs> to be able to navigate a parking lot without needing rubber boots after the service is over. Uh, and if you identify with those small things, uh, what it's like to, to live surrounded by chaos and disrepair, then you'll sort of have the launching off point for the larger experience that forms the backdrop for the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the book we're studying through the fall series. It's the launching off point for this deeper dive into the four pillars of our strategic plan. Nehemiah is one of the great, meticulous examples of how God leads through key leaders in the work of his kingdom. Nehemiah is ground in the broken heart of a leader who looks out over the demolished remains of a city and knows that what he sees physically mirrors what's going on spiritually in the lives of his people. Both their soul and their city had fallen victim to this just chaos of, of brokenness and disrepair. And out of that broken heart is born a vision for God's intervention. It leads first to a desperate prayer crusade. We began to look at that last week. And that is one of the key functions of leadership. Out of a broken heart flows streams of prayer. And then next he begins to discern a very carefully formulated plan for how to work on God's behalf in the world. It's not haphazard. It's well thought out. It's well intentioned. It's well designed. And once he's given the plan to God and bathed it in prayer, he then gives it to the people. And that vision captures them, and using that vision, he raises up a whole army of workers. Because sometimes it takes an army to get the work done. And then you see this tremendous picture of the people of God, shoulder to shoulder, rebuilding a community that had been fractured, a soul that had been ruptured, and a city that had fallen into. That's the story of Nehemiah. Last week we looked at chapter 1. This week we're going to use chapter 2 as a launching off point into exploring the second of our key pillars, unleashing the power of leadership. Chapter 2 is a, is a longish chapter. We're not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read sections. And if you have your Bibles open, I'll sort of fast forward at a couple of points and have you follow along with me. We're going to begin, though, in verse 1, chapter 2, Nehemiah. It says, in the springtime, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember last week we looked at the story of Nehemiah? He had a particular title, a particular place in leadership. Who remembers what it was? He was a cupbearer to the king. Now that's not the same as waiting tables at Swiss Chalet. That is a place of high prominence, high trust, and high esteem in the court of the ruler. You can well imagine that he is in a position to do tremendous harm to the most important person in the government. This is a position of great importance. And he's exercising his position in leadership. I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? 
sense of broken heart. And then the king said to me, what is it you want? You know what happens next? Before his wants come out, before his wishes and his dreams, he turns to God and prays. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. That's the dream. One born in prayer. I want you to leap ahead with me to verse 7. And here you begin to see a leader working behind the scenes. He's cutting through red tape. He's beginning to assemble resources and formulate a plan. I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters of transfer? Letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I also have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Out of a broken heart and a desperate prayer crusade, you begin to see the early stages of a plan forming and he's mobilizing resources. If you were to skim ahead over the next ten or so verses, you would see Nehemiah hard at work doing an inventory, doing a, a canvassing of the situation. This is where strategy becomes concrete and becomes real. Exactly what needs to be done. How much work is it? What's going to be required? How many people? What's the timeline? He's doing a careful inventory of every part of the wall around the city. And I want you to leap ahead with me to verse 18. Here's where the vision begins to stick. And you see him start to raise up that army of workers. To the people around him, he says, I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, catching the vision. Let's start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. We're going to stop there. We're going to commit our time to God in prayer, and then we're going to look at the subject of leadership in the life of God's people. My Father, this, this ancient story, confusing, inspiring, baffling, and at the same time provocative, Pray, God, that it would live not only in our lives as a subject of interest, but one of, of change and provocation. God, through the work of your Spirit, would you, would you take what's in this passage that's timeless and use it to do a work in our lives that's absolutely timely for us at this juncture in the life of our church. So God, would you move through the work of your Spirit, we pray. I want to give you a few classic pictures of leadership just to begin to stoke your imagination as we, as we launch. Imagine for a second William Wallace clad in full armor, blue paint on his face, about to lead the charge of his warriors against the army that would oppress him and his people. Or if you'd like another one, a portly cigar-chomping, regally-clad British Prime Minister, defiantly saying in the face of Nazi power and the collapse of Europe, we will never give up, 
we will never surrender. Winston Churchill. Or perhaps it's Mahatma Gandhi leading the 200-mile march to the sea to protest the salt tax. Maybe it's Martin Luther King Jr. standing before the Lincoln Memorial, challenging the nation with his dream for reconciliation. Each of those people recognized as one of the great leaders in history, leadership that impacted millions and millions of people. And it's dramatic, and it's inspiring, and it can be radically misleading. And here's why. The reality is that 99% of all good leadership doesn't happen from the top. It happens from the middle. You are all called to lead. And that doesn't have to be leadership by title. You don't have to be CEO or captain, president or prime minister. You are all called to lead in different seasons and different stations of life. Leadership is part of the discipleship journey. And if you've never thought about your life that way, if you thought, well, this is one Sunday where I get to tune out of the message a little bit because hey, I'm a follower, I'm not a leader. Let me pro uh, provoke you just a little bit by offering up this definition. The true measure of leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. It's influence. Leadership only based on power or title is very shallow leadership. Leadership is influence. And I know that we talk an awful lot in our day about leadership development. And, and the difficulty I have with that language is that what most people have in mind is the development of CEOs and captains and presidents. And, and that concept excludes the vast majority of people who are still called to lead. What I have in mind this morning is really something quite different. And it begins with the assertion that we are all called to lead. It's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You are called to be people of influence in the world. Winsome, persuasive, encouraging, challenging. You see leadership and, and you think, hey, that's, that's not me. Let me push you a little further. I want you to think with me about the leaders of the first church about those early leaders, about the disciples. What I have in front of me here is a list of the characteristics of the disciples of Jesus. I want you to listen closely and decide if they fit for you. Characteristics of the first disciples. Careful students of the scriptures. Zealous and active in the stand they take for God. An appetite for worship and prayer far along in the practice of scripture memorization, not afraid of public prayer, active in the affairs of the local church, fasting regularly, a firm desire to stand against blasphemy and ungodliness, and a deep grasp of foundational theological truths. That's you. Here's the problem. That's the wrong list. That's the list that describes the Pharisees, the great opponents of Jesus. Here's the real list. Poor knowledge of scripture. Overly concerned about status. Sometimes lacking in courage. 
often lacking in commitment, inconsistent, foul-tempered, prone to failure, confused, insecure, lots of doubts. I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. And that's the point. It isn't somebody else. It isn't somebody better. It's not somebody who's more gifted or more holy, somebody who, who's further along in the road. God has entrusted each of us with a role to play as the hopes and dreams of the kingdom come to life. He's going to do it through you. It's not somebody with more wisdom. It's not somebody younger with more energy. It's not somebody smarter with more schooling or, or somebody more seasoned with lots more life experience. And it isn't somebody with a deeper prayer life, more theological training, a better communicator. I pray all those things for all of us. But it starts now. It's you. You are the answer to every prayer that you have ever prayed for the lost. And you are the response to every petition for revival. But clearly, God chooses odd building material when he's building his kingdom in this generation. But he chose you. And he chose me. So what's he going to do with us? If the early disciples are any indication whatsoever, despite our failures, our weakness, and our wanderings, he still is willing to entrust us with something hugely important and give us the best that he has. Because not only is he willing to reconcile himself to us in Christ, not only does he give us a new way of seeing the world, the same God, is going to employ you in the greatest enterprise the world has ever known, the care and keeping of the kingdom. What I would like to do this morning is walk you through a series of six ideas about leadership. And I hope that I can change your mind so that leadership is not just a matter of admiring a select few who happen to stand in front of a crowd, but leadership triggers something within that says, God made me this. So here's the first observation. God did make you for this. You were created for leadership. This is why you were made. Paul says, you are God's handiwork. This is Ephesians 2, verse 10. You are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do great things. Things that God has prepared long in advance. Now, people wonder about this. They they wonder when we reframe leadership in this way. So let me give you a deeper definition. You said leadership is influence. Let's, let's unpack it a little further. Leadership is simply this. It's using the gifts that God has put inside of me to do the work that God has set before me to influence the people that God has placed around me through the spirit that God has put within me. You want to hear that again? Leadership is using the gifts that God has put inside of me to do the work that God has set before me to influence the people who are around me through the work of the Spirit that God has put within me. You were created for this. And not just that, you were created in unique ways for this. You were wired up by God to do this in a way that, that nobody else really can't. And this started to come out really, really early as parents. One of the illusions that we have that gets quickly broken is that our kids are born into the world as a kind of blank tableau, and we get to write on them whatever we want. Not so. There's a word for parents who believe that. Naive. 
right? <laughs> and, and, and very quickly, we come to know just how naive we are. Kids come out and their wiring is really, really strong. And here's the thing. God designed them. God designed you. And you will always be you. You'll never be somebody else. And sometimes we miss this and we mess it up in the church because we, we look at somebody up there and they're a real spiritual giant. They're a great leader. And we think, if I'm going to lead, I need to be like them. So we pray, God, could I be more like them? Instead of saying, God, I just want to embrace the person that you made me to be and admit that you have a call of leadership in my life, in this season, and in this place. You will always be you. God made you that way. In fact, do this. Look at the person next to you. Okay? And say this. You don't look anything like me. <laughs> God designed you to be you. And part of the task of being you is accepting and embracing what God has made, not lamenting over what is not there. Leadership does not require that you become someone you are not. Your temperament, your tastes, your passions, your interests, your learning style, all of that. You are God's handiwork, created to do good works that he prepared for you well in advance. Some of you are still getting me over the fact that you don't look like the person next to you. <laughs> Next observation, you were saved for leadership. You were saved for a purpose, and, and so was I. It's God who saved us, but it's also God who chose us with something to do. One of the dangers, and, and this really reached a fever pitch in the 20th century in the Western church, is that in our, in our zeal to see the world come to Christ, which is a good, good goal, we sometimes reduce the gospel to this idea that if we can get people to pray that prayer, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord, my Savior, my Master, my friend, then their ticket to heaven is stamped and our work is done. No. Our work begins. You're not just saved for heaven. You're saved with a purpose for now. When you claim the name of Jesus in your life, it means that you also bear the name of Jesus with your life. There's a word for that. It's a scriptural word. It's a formal governmental word. The word is ambassador. Apostle Paul, remember, he said, you are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal to the world through you. That's influence. Influence is leadership. An ambassador has a singular purpose. You represent the king. You promote the king's agenda, you protect the king's reputation, you present the king's will. The ambassador elevates the name of the king. That's influence. Influence is leadership. You were saved for a purpose. And when you don't identify or enter into the purpose, it's almost like it's almost like we're showing disdain for what Jesus did on our behalf. Lord, I'll accept the salvation, the punched ticket, but I don't really see myself as being involved with anything that you have created me to be between this moment and the moment that I finally arrive and show you. Created for leadership, saved for leadership, 
called to leadership. And Paul says this again and again. Here's an example, Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a captive to, to the Lord, I, I urge you, lead a life worthy of the calling that you've received. What's the calling that you've received? I was ordained as a minister in the Baptist church 26 years ago. A group of pastors gathered together. They formed an ordination examining council, and they put a hot seat out in the front, and, and they grilled me for a while. Questions about theology and practice. And one of the questions that I was asked to answer was this, tell us the story of your calling. But the idea that they had in mind was that to be a pastor, it was like this special calling. It was code language for this mystical, emotional encounter where God tells you that, that you're special in this way and I'm going to set you aside and, and you're not going into the marketplace like ordinary followers of Jesus. You're going to go to the church. And it was all part of this, this two-track system that said pastors and ministers, they have a calling to lead. And everybody else who's not a minister, the lay people, they're the followers. They're the volunteers. They don't have the calling to lead. And I'm absolutely convinced that not only is that not biblical, it's been destructive in the life of the church. So I wanted to say to the council, I think I tried to say, you know what, I, I know I have a calling. But I don't believe that my calling is any more special than the call that Jesus places on any other life. My paycheck may say MCBC, and theirs may say Board of Education or Hewlett Packard or whatever it is. But their job, your job, mine, our place in the body, the contributions that we make, it's all living out the calling of God in our lives. You are called to lead. As surely as, as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or whoever the spiritual giants may be in your life, you are called to lead. Now, what does it look like? Let's suggest that, that for the sake of, of a starting point, it, it starts right where you are now. It, it starts with living winsomely and intentionally and influentially as an ambassador right where you are. So for some of you, that means my boss is my minister. My bus is my ministry, and I will be in unceasing prayer with Jesus. I will graciously and intentionally look for ways to encourage and welcome the people that I carry. And most importantly, I'm going to get them where they need to go safely and on time. But I'm going to see this as my ministry field, and I leave there. Or my classroom is my ministry. Whether you're a teacher or a student, how do I learn? Who do I encourage? Who feels alone? Who's feeling left out? Who could I use, or how, who could Jesus use me to bless in his name? I'm going to lead in the classroom. My cubicle. My cubicle is, is my ministry. When the phone rings, there's somebody on it. I'm going to say a little prayer before I pick it up because they're angry. I'm in customer support. Everybody's angry. <laughs> but I'm going to think about how I can influence and bless them. Whatever it is, my patients, my clients, my neighborhood, my store, I'm going to leave first right where I am. I'm just going to show up every day, reach up to Jesus, claim the power of the Holy Spirit in me, and then look for opportunities to lead, bless, and influence right where I am. 
To that we're all called. It's not special to a chosen few. You're called. Next observation, you're gifted for this. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's gift in all of its various forms. The language of giftedness, spiritual gifts, is absolutely essential to Christian leadership and for the church to flourish. If, if the blessing of God is going to get through the conduit of his people, spiritual gifts are the pipeline through which it will come. This is what will fuel and propel your influence. And more than just that, they're critical for your own growth in Christ. You will never experience the power of God at work in your life, quite like when you allow him to work through your area of gifts. It's, it's like when you screw in a light bulb and flip the switch, and suddenly all that current, all those electrons go firing through it. There's light. It just does something to you. And without that shared experience, without all the lights being on, the church sort of loses its vibrancy. Instead, what you get is one little subcategory of folk glowing away over here. They're the leaders. And everybody's just watching and praying that they don't grow dim. That's not the church. The Lord's entrusted each of you with a key task. Part of our responsibility in leadership is to examine the tools that he's given us, the gifts and abilities, and use those to determine our purpose. Again, 1 Peter 4, if anyone leads, let them do it with the ability that God supplies, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When God gives an assignment, also gives the skill. You study your skills, your gifts, your abilities as a way of understanding your assignment. So look at some of you. Is that for your uncanny ease with numbers? <laughs> Trailing your your quenchless curiosity with engineering, science. Other people will look at a set of blueprints and yawn. But we have a few who look at them and they drool. Some of you, you hear the sound of a baby crying and you run from the room, but others, Sheila, will run right towards the crib. <laughs> I was made to do this. Something just resonates inside. Our maker gives leadership assignments to people. Each one, the Bible says, according to their own abilities. You didn't arrive in the world of blank slate. You came Pre-packed. And as God calls, he equips. The Spirit of God, says in 1 Corinthians 12, has been given to each of us in our own special way so that we can lead and we can serve. You were born pre-packed. Somehow God looked at your entire life and your assignment and gave you the tools to do it. So he looks out and he says, there's a sheesh. He's going to run the finance department. I'll make him really nimble with numbers. Later in life, I'm going to use him as the leader who helps to mobilize a $5 million building campaign to plant a new church in a growing neighborhood. There's Megan. 
She's at work in a school, leading a classroom. Extra doses of administration, creativity, and patience. She's going to chair the deacon's board someday. She'll need all of that. There's Jose. I need him to comfort the sick. I'm going to include in him a, a healthy share of compassion. He's going to be an elder in the church. There's Karina. She's going to have to marry Richard. <laughs> Lots and lots and lots of patience. <laughs> you get the idea? You are gifted for the leadership God is calling you to. Here's the fifth observation. You're absolutely needed. You're needed for ministry. The body is a unit, the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12. The body is a unit. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. It's all about shared gifts of leadership. Paul goes on to say, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Have you ever had a really awful headache? I mean, hands up if you've just been victim to terrible, terrible headaches. How many of you have one right now? Because a certain going on In the middle of one of those terrible, terrible headaches, have you ever heard somebody say, you know what? It's just the most awful experience. I'm having a terrible headache today. Hey, but my back feels terrific. I'm having a glorious back day. We don't talk that way and we don't think that way. Why not? Because the body doesn't work that way. It's a unit. What happens to one part affects the other part. If the feet don't work, the ears might be working great, but they don't get to hear anything because they don't go out. One of the biggest myths about the church can be a big place, lots of people. Feels like some of them have more resources than I do, and they're already killing it and leading well. So I'm not needed around here. That'll kill us as a church. It'll do it quickly, and it'll do it completely. This is not an organization. This is a body. It's the body of Christ. It's an organism. And would God change the world just with a little handful of people from a human standpoint, tremendously unimpressive, but they were gifted by the Holy Spirit and they were together in what they did. This is the body of Christ. And God doesn't put any useless parts in the body. Let me try and say it this way. When people with the gift of helps aren't leading. When people with the gift of encouragement aren't leading. When people with the gift of prayer don't lead. And then when people who don't have any of those gifts try to lead, for whatever goofy reason, they end up trying it and they don't do it that well, or it just doesn't get done. When that starts to happen, I don't care how impressive the building looks from outside. I don't care how impressive the people look on the inside. The body is sick. And it's dying. You're needed for ministry. And let's be clear. You're needed because together we're building something and it's a legacy that will outlast all of us. Nehemiah was building a wall, but the wall was also meant to rouse the souls of a generation. We're building something. One little brick at a time. So when some of you get on your knees to teach a child, that's a brick that strengthens not just the present, but the future. When you disciple a teen, there's a brick that has eternal significance. When you embrace one of Canada's newcomers, 
offer friendship and invitation and connection. That's a brick that gets to stand long after you and I have gone. When you feed someone at Scott Mission or a family at the open door or share your resources with a village on the other side of the world, you're laying kingdom bricks. When you're given the vision to lead a ministry to shut-ins or reaching out to struggling neighbors or entertaining somebody new, you're building the kingdom. You welcome people here into worship. You come extra early to make sure everything is just right and that when people arrive, they don't just slip through unnoticed. When you help craft the bulletin or the visuals or or you work the soundboard, Sam, or you work the videos back there, Lucas, when when you share in prayer and fellowship with a newcomer, you're constructing the cathedral of God's kingdom, one little brick at a time. There's the mortar ministries, the behind-the-scenes one, balancing a ledger, fixing the plumbing, shoveling a walkway, the people who coordinate all of that, organizing an agenda and a church meeting to make sure they stay on point, and the vision of God never gets lost. These are things that, that form the mortar that holds the bricks together. And think about this, too. It's not just what you do that becomes the brick and mortar of God's kingdom. It's who you are. When is the last time you saw an investment in your own spiritual health and vitality as an investment in the building of God's kingdom? Leading a small group, organizing a prayer team, committing yourself to a mentoring relationship and asking that you be mentored into brick by brick. First Peter 2 says, you are the living stones that are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, acceptable to God through Christ. Here's the last observation. You and I will be held accountable for our leadership. You're accountable for the ministry to which you've been called. Jesus tells this story. Many of you will know it. Master gives out a whole bunch of talents to his servants, the three of them specifically. The turning point in the story comes when the master returns and settles accounts with each of the three servants. One day, God will ask everybody, what did you do with the things that I gave you? I don't get to be accountable for what everybody else does, but I'm absolutely accountable for what God has given to me. And one day I will stand before my Creator and He will say, what did you do with the things I entrusted to you? You're accountable for your leadership. I said that was the last thing, but I don't want to end that. So let me toss in one more so we end on the right note. You'll be rewarded for your leadership. This is something to look forward to. You'll be remembered and rewarded for your leadership. It's worth imagining for just a moment what that's going to be like. In Jesus' story, it says the master returned, and he replies to his faithful servant leaders. He says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of so much more. Come and share the joy of your master. One day, One glorious day, you and I will stand before our maker, the God of the universe, 
And I hope we get to hear these words together. Well done, good and faithful servant leaders. Well done. And because you've been faithful in a few things, I'm going to give you so much more. See, maybe, maybe you're a little disappointed along the way. Your career's not working out the way that you thought. Life has taken a turn, and maybe it's not for the better. Do you know this? None of us have got our final assignment yet. That's still coming. Well done, faithful servant leaders. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come, enter into your master's happiness. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's it. You're made for leadership. Saved for it, called to it, gifted for it. You'll be accountable for it. One day, we'll stand before the Lord and we'll get to hear, well done. You've been sitting for a long time. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And if any of this has resonated with you at all, I'm going to invite you just in in thinking your way through this prayer with me as we say, God, I'm all in. I'm so grateful for everything that you've done in me and for me and through me. God, we're grateful for this church, for all those who come before us, for the faithfulness of people, some of whom we don't even know. We pray for this part of the family of God. Lord, we want to pray specifically for those leaders who have been such an influence in our lives, for the investment that they made in us, we want to say thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness. They allowed themselves to be a conduit of influence for us. And this morning, Lord, as we think about stepping out in a new way, I ask that you help us to call to mind one name, one person, one situation in which you're inviting us to lead, be a person of influence. God, as we prepare to invest ourselves in that relationship, we do so with the prayer that whatever has come before, that this might be the greatest chapter yet. The story of our own life, our own discipleship, our own leadership, our own church, we're all in here for you, we're here for each other, and we pray it together. And everyone agreed with this prayer, and together everyone said, Amen.